This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe financial technology. Paul Walker, former CTO at Goldman Sachs, was so great in our previous episode that I'd invited him back. He talks to Hilary Park, Chief Strategy Officer at L Markets, to discuss portfolio compression and what it feels like being in a financial technology startup. first name. <laughs> Hi, how are you, Paul? Very good. Who do we have today with us? We have Hillary Park, who's the Chief Strategy Officer of L Markets, one of our portfolio companies here at Motive. Uh, my name is Hillary Park. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at L Markets. I've been with the company for five years. I'm one of the original founders. I joined, I was the first full-time employee to join after the first year incubation whiteboarding stage that preceded me. Why don't you tell me what L Markets does? L Markets is focused on eliminating systemic risk. So systemic risk, that's something we hear about a lot. We've heard about it since 2008. What exactly do you mean by systemic risk? Systemic risk, which also, you know, some people may be more familiar with too big to fail. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that these institutions can enter into any kinds of trades. I mean, derivatives are probably the most infamous, mm -hmm. but it could be something other than that. And that the risk posed to the system by any one institution could result in a chain domino type effect, which could really compromise the financial realities. I mean, it could be you go to the ATM in the morning and nothing comes out. So sort of the hip bones connected to the thigh bone connected to the, and if you pull over here, exactly. the, whole, the whole web can come up. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And look, you know, I know there's been a lot of work on fixing that in many markets. How does L Markets help us fix that in the markets you work in? It's a different approach. So a lot of the approaches that have been taken since 2008 have most likely been regulatory. People may be familiar with Don Frank. People may be familiar with mandatory clearing. People may be familiar with stress testing, with increased capital requirements. L Markets has a relatively simple approach in that one of the principal philosophies is that counterparty risk need not exceed net market risk. Okay, so what is net market risk? Net market risk is, let's say that I'm a market maker at a bank, mm -hmm. and I'm in keeping with the spirit of Volcker, not doing proprietary trading, and I'm just trying to provide liquidity in the markets. Okay. At the end of so the day- So that means I just sit there all day long, and I would buy or sell- Buy 10 from this guy, sell three to that guy, right, exactly. go back and forth. Traditional market making that we've had for hundreds of years. Exactly. Okay. But at the end of the day, I don't want to have a view on the markets. I want to be able to sleep well whether the market goes up or down. So I'm not going to have much net market risk okay. across all of my counterparties. Right. And that doesn't have to be more than your counterparty risk. Right. So I suppose if I sold 10 to Joe and bought 10 from Jane, then I would have zero, but I would still also kind of have 10 with Joe and minus 10 with Jane. Right. So you'd have 20 of counterparty risk to support zero of net market risk. Right. Why is that problem a systemic risk? Well, with derivatives, there's an ongoing obligation. So it isn't as simple as if you're trading bonds. It isn't that there's this one item that moves from this place so, to this so place. So I have 10 to Joe forever and 10 from Jane forever. Well, so no, maybe not forever, but for the life of the for, swap for, or for, for 30 the days, the for 90 days. Exactly. And so if Jane goes away, then all of a sudden... Then you're not going to be receiving the currency that you need to pay out to, okay. I can't remember if it was Joe. Joe. I think it was Joe. I think it was Joe and Jane. That okay, good. Right. good. Um, we should have given them proper counterparty names. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So L Markets steps in. What does L Markets do? L Markets receives positions, or really they're risk exposures, because we believe that it's the risk that we want to mitigate rather than having a myopic view that looks at every single little trade. So the participants in our cycles will report their positions to us, something that they would never share with one another, right? Sure. And as we don't trade, we only run these algorithms and provide them with the analytic, we can
can come up with a series of trades that would be in the participants' mutual best interests that will result in a minimization and reallocation and redistribution of the risks such that the counterparty risk becomes much closer to the net market risk. So in my simple example, you would say, hey, Paul, trade out of the position with Joe, trade out of the position with Jane. That's right. And hey, Jane, trade into the position with Joe. That's so right. Jane and Joe are plus 10 against each other, and my zero is also matched by an actual zero. That's right. And so we're doing this in a way, the series of trades that would be recommended don't change any party's net market risk, mm-hmm. right? But it does change their counterparty risk in just the way that you right. suggested. So that sounds like a, some pretty hard math. How do you actually do that problem? That's the fun part. I mean, my I, I love math. I mean, when I was when I was little and I would go and put up with the errands running around the city with my mother, mm-hmm. um, my reward was that we'd get to go to the bookstore and she'd buy me a new math book. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. so, What's your favorite subfield of math? What very, math book are you reading at home right very, now? Probably. The, I'm rereading the, another one on convex optimization. <laughs> I mean, optimization is a really fascinating field of math. That, and there's been tremendous changes in the last 15 to 20 years, which mm-hmm. really make possible the solving of problems that would not have been possible previously. So you're doing this clever optimization, and 15 years ago it would have been impossible. I buy that. Lots of things were impossible 15 years ago. It seems, though, you also have to generate an awful lot of confidence from the market participants for them to share these positions with you and do the trades. Absolutely. How do you do that? Persistence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Five years ago, it was incredibly difficult for us to get the banks to share their positions with us. They'd Mm -hmm. take the meetings. They thought that our ideas were interesting. When it came right down to, well, could you please share your positions so that we can demonstrate what we could do? It took a lot of time, and it took a lot of persistence. Getting the first one was about 100 times harder than it was to get the second and third one. After that, it became easier. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in this type of business is that we're offering a network solution. And so you can't incrementally build, you can't get one client and then get two clients and then get three. You really have to get a group who is willing to test something. Back to my example, if you have me and Joe and you don't have Jane, you can't suggest the trade between Joe and Jane that optimizes the solution. That's right. Right. Um, But so, you know, we were persistent and we ended up getting the exposures from the first three and then four and then five. Mm-hmm. And we've been running betas with real data across various product classes for the last five years. And little by little, you come to build respect and you know a reputation for knowing how to solve these problems. And I believe that that's what we've done. Let's talk about running a financial technology startup. Because you know, plenty of people talk about fintech and the fintech revolution, and it's changing the world. And in many parts of the world, that's true, including the part you're in. But they forget that those companies are actually a group of people typing stuff into a computer that's and right. delivering a product that makes someone excited. That's so what's right. that journey been like for you? It's been it's <laughs> been completely different from anything else that I've ever done in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off when I was 20 working on the distressed debt desk at Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. That was the first of many jobs as a prop trader, be it at a large institution or being at a hedge fund. And being a trader is trader and analyst. I mean, I did both. Mm-hmm. It's very different because you're really solely focused on, you know, you have one goal, which is turn money into more money. And you may be working with one or two other people on it. You may be researching something in tandem. If you're the trader, you may have an analyst that you trust. If you have the analyst, you may have a trader that you're working with. But you don't really have to have that broad of a skill set. I mean, we all like to say that we're generalists and we know about all of these industries and everything, but it's really a rather singly focused job that is as as much about sitting on your hands during the times when there's nothing to do as it is about doing the right thing when there is something to do. Nervous trading is bad trading. Yes, exactly. I don't get to sit on my hands very much anymore. Um, (laughs) I don't really miss those days, but I, I don't get to do much of that. Sure. Um, the experience of building a team is something that has probably been one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Another th- sort of side effect of being traders, in my experience, I didn't have that sense of being part of a greater whole. Mm-hmm. And this company has grown what feels like very rapidly to me, even though we, we were three people for the first four years of our existence, and now we're up to about 10. 
And each incremental person that we've been able to hire has brought an entirely new skill set that we did not have at our disposal. Whereas, you know, sometimes if you're sort of working with yourself and one other person, a lot of career becomes about, well, how do I make up for my shortcomings? Well, here the answer is different. You hire somebody who doesn't have the same shortcomings. And it's so much more satisfying. I'm just very excited. I, I feel so incredibly lucky to be working with the people that we've convinced to come join us on our wild journey. And you're housed here at Motive. Uh, we are. You know, where I'm a, a senior advisor and a member yes. of the Global Advisory Council. And so I see you all the time. Exactly. How have you enjoyed the experience of being up here with the Motive team? It's pretty incredible. I mean, for the first four years, we were working out of our apartments. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting to actually have to get up and get dressed and, you know, not, <laughs> not work in my pajamas all the time. But after I got through that adjustment, It's been tremendous because it's also a reminder all the time that even though the team has expanded, we have this wealth of information and knowledge and wisdom like like your own, which you've been so generous in sharing with us. Any time that we need some help, it magically is provided for us, right? If it doesn't exist in-house, they'll help us figure out where to get it. Hmm. And it's also incredibly inspiring because to be around what we're trying to do is incredibly difficult. I mean, it's a slightly ambitious goal. And five years ago, honestly, it seemed about as rational as trying to win the lottery. I I believed in the goal and I believed in the end case and I really wanted to solve puzzles all the time. So I just figured, you know, why not give this a year? I deserve to do something fun for at least a little while. We'll see where it goes. But being around people who have had the kinds of successes that the Motive team has, it makes you really believe that anything is possible. So what's next for L Markets? What are you excited about in 2018? We're going to be expanding into different product classes. We're going to be expanding into different regions. The World Bank did an investment in us. And it's interesting because they tend not to be so focused on capital market solutions, right? Mm -hmm. But they invested in us in part because they believed that we could help promote liquidity and stability in emerging markets. And so they've made a large number of introductions to us in Asia. That was something that we had sort of thought might be on the horizon three or four years from now, but that timeframe has really been accelerated. And it's exciting because we can use the same algorithms and the same approaches that we've already built, but we're just, you know, opening them up to a wider audience. And so I'll end with this question, which is, you know, you've done something remarkable. You've taken an incredibly complicated analytic and incredibly detailed market full of people with opinions and personalities, and you've convinced them to work with you to really decrease risk and increase capital efficiency in that market. Absolutely. So if you were a young entrepreneur sitting out there listening to this Motive podcast, because you've listened to the whole Motive podcast stream as you've tried to figure out how to break into the world of fintech. Right. What are the things you would tell him or her that she or he should do? And what would you tell him or her to be ready for that's the most unexpected? First thing would be, do they already have the idea that they want to execute on or do they just want to get into fintech? Hmm. If they already have the idea, great. If they don't already have the idea, I would say that one of the things um, that has enabled us to get this far is that we looked at a problem that is incredibly complicated, but we're able to break it down into much simpler, digestible and solvable problem. You know, so you, you break down all the complexity and you, you add it back in later, but get it down to its most basic building blocks and start there. In terms of the second thing that you asked was in terms of... What's going to surprise them the most on their journey into the world of fintech startups? It's an interesting question. It might surprise them how, like the appetite that investors have for this. I mean, I think that this is, it's considered to be an incredibly exciting space right now. Um, What we're doing is such a niche part of finance that when I joined, I, I thought that if we got to the right audience, you know, this very specific part of the financial world, that they would be very receptive. I didn't expect the breadth of the audience that we would have that would be willing to listen to us. Yeah. Um, world Bank, like for example, being an sure. example of that. I also would say that one of the biggest challenges is probably learning how to navigate the big institutions. <laughs> you know, it's incredibly difficult to figure out how to get to the right person. So somewhere on your advisor list or your investor list, find some people who can help you navigate that if you don't already feel that you have those yeah. those skills or right. those contacts. Right. So if you have a great idea, find someone who can help you navigate your clients yeah. and then commit to it and have fun. And yeah. 
if you're not sure what your idea is, find a great fintech company like L Markets exactly. where you could uh, have an exciting career exactly. starting in the environment. Exactly. And absolutely make sure that you're working with the right people because you are going to be spending a lot of time yes. with them. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Hillary. Thank it was you. a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.